At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Happy Heresies, and welcome to the Desert of the Real. Bienvenidos al Desierto del Real. And you may be asking, what's going on? Strange intro. Uh, here I am, very casual. I've got my AM by t-shirt. I even have the dog in the room, another dog in the room. Uh, what's going on, Miguel? Well, I wanted to briefly share a message as I share a new piece of content. And uh, yes, as I always say, gnosis. No, what did I always say? Variety is the spice of gnosis. And uh, your life begins where your comfort zone ends. And whatever cliche you want to <laughs> think about or that I've uh, said in the past. But anyway, as some of you may know... I started the uh, Finding Hermes program, where beyond all the benefits you get from being an AB Prime member or a patron at Patreon, you get some exclusive content and meetings every month. Once a month, I have a Q&A where I answer all your questions about Gnosticism, the shows we have. And sometimes we end up having really cool discussions, uh, just sharing about Gnosticism in general in a small and uh, quaint little group. Um, the other meeting we have once a month is the Praxis Ritual and Healing Meeting, where I offer presentations on the authentic rituals of the Gnostics across history, something to help you with your practices, or if you're just interested in learning uh, what the Gnostics were doing. Uh, while they were trying to expand their consciousness and take those mystical flights across the spheres. And it's gone very well. Very cool. Um, I've done already presentations on Gnostic vowels, uh, Gnostic magic rituals, meditation, and other topics. Uh, this month, I'm excited. I'm doing a presentation on Gnostic magical rites. Grr. Um, and, uh, also one of the features or one thing I do with the praxis ritual and healing meetings is I like to invite guests so they can give a very personal 
presentation on something that they are experts of. Uh, we had John Munter giving a presentation on the spiritual and praxis secrets of the Gospel of Thomas. We've had uh, guests pr providing uh, presentations on the Gnostic Eucharist and so forth. One of them that we did recently and one that I will be sharing on this show or this piece of content is Chris Bennett, who is one of the leading researchers for entheogens, specifically cannabis in ancient, medieval, and modern culture. He gave a presentation on cannabis use in ancient religion from the Hebrews, Christians, Muslims, pagans, and yes, the Gnostics. So thought I'd share with you as a sort of, uh, well, promotion to see if it's something you might want to join. It's not much more than if a regular membership and uh, you get a lot of cool benefits beyond the two meetings. I also am always sharing uh, other content, documents, collaterals, videos, exclusive videos to help you understand the Gnostics and hopefully help you Find your authentic higher self. Uh, take that voyage across the spheres. So that's it. And that's coming right up. The other thing I wanted to share too is, um, I have expanded the Aeon Byte and Finding Hermes to other platforms. And, uh, why am I doing this? Well, we do, uh, we live in very, you might say, uh, cultural revolutionary times, times when these Al the demonic algorithms are getting more violent and more censoring. So I thought I'd expand to some other platforms. Also, many of you through the years have asked that I accept cryptocurrency. So this will, this will also satisfy uh, this suggestion I've had from so many listeners. So now I, uh, now that I've said this, I am currently now on Odyssey and yes, it's flashing across the screen and I will have it in our show notes. And with Odyssey, you don't get the full, um, shows like you would if you're an AB Prime member or Patreon, but you are able to support and uh, donate via cryptocurrency. And in the future, we'll see how I can change that. I'm also too now on Rockfin. Rockfin is a growing platform. And again, as uh, podcasting becomes uh, less centralized and spreads out to avoid, uh, well, all the weirdness and censoring and canceling that's going out, that's going on out there. Rockfin is a grow fast, very fast growing uh, podcast content media platform. It's subscription based, but it allows you also to tip or donate or subscribe via cryptocurrency. So, and I will have all my full content there for, for you to access. So, uh, yes, uh, variety is a spice of gnosis and I am expanding things. So I thought I'd let you know as I keep, uh, well, trying to expand the Gnosis, trying to serve you better in these strange times in this Philip K. Dick world, in this age of Hermes, where we need that Gnosis more than ever. I've ho I hope I've done, uh, I hope I have served you as I, I have always wanted. So that's it. 
quite short, no big deal. And uh, yes, led us to our Finding Hermes presentation, Praxis Ritual and Healing with the brilliant Chris Bennett. And let me know your thoughts. To the Finding Hermes Virtual Alexandria. Yes, glad to see everybody. Tonight, uh, we, this is uh, our Gnostic Praxis Ritual and Therapeutic Healing. And glad to see everybody uh, with us tonight. We've got Chris Bennett, I believe, is one of the leading researchers when it comes to entheogen use across history. And uh, what I love about uh, Chris's work is that he falls under the category of uh, first they ignore you, then they call you crazy, then they accept his, uh, your ideas. Because Chris with uh, Daniel Pinchbeck and all these others were many years ago talking about this research, and now this re- research is suddenly mainstream. So I love what Chris has done, and he's really been a pioneer. So Chris, welcome. Thanks. Hey, my pleasure. I always uh, enjoy doing your show. You know, you you know what you're talking about, and that's hard to find in a in a podcast host these days. Um, and for people that don't know me, um, I've been my name is Chris Bennett, and I've been researching the role of cannabis in uh, magic and religion for about thirty years. Here's some of the books I've written on the topic: uh, Green Gold, The Tree of Life, Marijuana, and Magic and Religion. Uh, sex, drugs, violence in the Bible. You can see these are big books and they got Good huge book. bibliographies. Uh, Cannabis in the Soma Solution. And the most recent one was uh, Lieber 420, Cannabis, uh, Magical Herbs and the Occult. Uh, um, and I've also written like chapters in other people's books and uh, uh, um, journals and that sort of things, lots of articles, that sort of stuff. And it's been a very, very keen interest. And uh, um, and it's interesting that I'm speaking to a Gnostic group because I kind of had a Gnostic experience about a little over 30 years ago that has led me on this path. And at that time, you know, um, I'm, I'm like, I, I'll be honest with you, I'm not like a regular academic. I'd probably call myself a religious for, reformer or something if I were to put, it, put myself in a box. Uh, um, but I had this really powerful religious experience uh, uh, 30 years ago, when I, a little over 30 years ago when I was 27. And at that time, I was a night watchman in a fish plant, and I was a surfer. I lived on the west coast of Vancouver Island in British Columbia, and uh, I spent, you know, my, I grew cannabis, I surfed, and that was basically what, what my whole trip was. And um, a number of events uh, happened that brought about this religious experience for me, and the first of these had to do with the Catholic Church. Here in Canada, there was a big controversy about an orphanage here, Mount Cashel Orphanage. And they had found that uh, kids growing up that had been in this orphanage, and they started reporting that they were molested by the monks and brothers of, of the orphanage. And this was the first time this was sort of talked about. And I was like, oh, that's really weird, you know. I wasn't really brought up with religion. My mom was more of the astrology and tea leaves type, right? But I still had the cultural imprint of, of, of the basis, and I guess I kind of accepted it, you know, with Easter and Christmas and all these holidays. And Okay, I guess that's what's going on. Jesus, you know, in scary movies with a cross and the vampire. I kind of accepted it in my childhood, you know. And um, I thought, well, I'm going to get a Bible and read the Bible because I just can't see how this is so weird that these would be the people that are molesting children. And I started reading it, and I just couldn't make sense of it. I stuck it in this night watchman office, and I forgot about it. 
coinciding with this, um, where I lived on Vancouver Island, there was a big controversy about logging the last old growth uh, coastal rainforest, uh, Clackwood Sound. And all of a sudden, environmentalists started pouring into the town. And my brother was a camp chairman for the logs. I grew, I worked in sawmills and, you know, uh, uh, um, and so I was like, whoa, that's really weird. And then also what happened was a friend of mine recorded this documentary about the industrial fuel and fiber. And when he told me about it, I was like, oh, no way, that can't be true. And then I saw this thing and I started looking it up and I was like, oh, I guess there's something to this. And um, one night and the Gulf War started as well, you know, uh, uh, um, the initial Gulf War. So one night I was in this fish plant. This is the religious experience finally after my pre-tail. And I was about two in the morning and I was smoking a joint and I was reading a newspaper. And in those days, there was no internet, so people, the, the, the television shows, all that type of stuff was in the newspaper, and I was flicking through it, and there was an advertisement for a sermon by Pat Robertson, and it was Revelations 18, the fall of Babylon. There was Robertson at the pulpit, and behind him, he had pictured tanks and jets, and I was like, oh, wow, these guys are tying in the book of Revelation with uh, the Gulf War, and for some reason, I'd always had kind of a fascination with the apocalypse, I guess, being born in the time period we are, everybody does in, in, in some way. And so I thought, I'm going to get that Bible, and I'm going to read the book of Revelation right now. And I open it up, and I start reading it. And John, he's given a scroll, and he puts it in his mouth, and it tastes as sweet as honey. And he swallows it, and it turns bitter in his stomach, and he begins to prophesize. And I was like, what did that guy eat? And then I read a little further, and they're describing how they're dressed in clothes of sackcloth. And they were given incense to offer, and the incense contained the, the prayers of the saints. And uh, then I got to the very end of the Bible, and I read the last verse, Revelations 22. And it said, on either side of the river of life stood the tree of life, bearing 12 manners of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And in that moment, I felt like light just beamed into me, and that this was a a reference to cannabis and all its multiple uses, how we could save our forests and heal our sicknesses and feed the world. And I tell you, like, every time I tell that story, 30 years later, I still feel the emotional impact of that experience. I can't tell it without my eyes welling up. It was just like, it was the turning point of my life. There was before that moment and after that moment. And so I called my wife up, my first wife up, and she thought I was having some sort of breakdown. She started her head off. And the next day I got up and I couldn't decide if there was anything to lamp stuff. And I started this organization, Patriotic Court Canadians for Hemp. And then I, uh, I thought, if there's anything to this religious matter, then somebody somewhere else will know something about it. It'll be beyond my own personal experience. And there'll be something to it. And I started slowly collecting bits of information whenever I... I ran across it, you know what I mean? And so here it is 30 years later. And uh, um, they say there, you know, like the difference between to distinguish an epiphany, either some sort of miraculous healing, or you were given information that you had no way of knowing. And I'm saying that, yeah, somehow I was given information that I had no way of knowing at that time. Now, when we talk about now, you know, I've tried to write my books from a real anthropological perspective and leave my personal experience out of the tale. Sometimes I'll put it in there for a bit of a disclaimer because we're all guilty of biases, right? 
Um, but when we take a look at humanity's relationship with Canada, just based on archaeology, current archaeology places it like, you know, probably about 25,000 BC, uh, based on evidence of rope that they believe was made from hemp and also tools used for breaking fibers, according to Elizabeth uh, Whalen Barber, uh, tools that were used for breaking the fibers of hemp. And she's the foremost export on uh, agent. And, and so and we have evidence of hemp cloth, you know, from about 10,000, 12,000 BC in Taiwan and also in Cattle Hayek. So there's already like in this early stage of humanity, there's already being hemp processed, right? And people like Carl Sagan and Terence McKenna, who we were talking about earlier, have speculated that this was likely humanity's first agricultural crop, you know? And that's a big thing because culture grew out of agriculture. In regards to its psychoactive use, this really seems to originate with uh, ancient Indo-European culture and Proto-Indo-European culture. And we can see from uh, evidence out of the Ukraine going back like 5,500 years ago, it's thought that cannabis was burnt in uh, uh, um, burial rituals uh, as an incense. You know, they found polypop bowls with evidence of burnt cannabis seeds. Uh, um, and this practice with Indo-European culture was quite right, widespread. You know, we have evidence out of China now uh, with the Gushi, an Indo-European culture that was living in central China, that they were, you know, we have a, a lot of archaeological evidence for this that, that have been on, on mummified remains. We found uh, um, processed female cannabis in a tomb. We found a censer uh, uh, that was used for burning cannabis at a burial site. So, and this is a similar practice to later Indo-European groups like the Scythians as well practice a similar thing. So this is pretty widespread. Now, in regards to cannabis in the Holy Land, I'll uh, uh, share a screen here. There's been... Uh, um, I've been suggesting, uh, based on uh, archaeological evidence, I mean, etymological evidence, language evidence, uh, that there's been a role in cannabis for a very long time. Uh, um, and recent archaeological evidence uh, has, has indicated that this is the case. In Arad, Jerusalem, they found a temple site uh, that was thought to be a miniature version of the Holy of Holies. And this is this site here. And at this site, uh, um, they found two censers, uh, one on this here uh, and this one here. This one was used for growing frankincense, I mean, for burning frankincense. But on this one, they found that cannabis resins had been burned. And um, then I'll give you some idea of the size of the uh, tomb. Just a second. I lost my thing there. Mm-mm. Now, here's somebody sitting at the temple site. So it's not a very big spot, right? Uh, um, it's actually kind of very small. And this would have all been closed in. So you can imagine it would have got quite smoky in there. And so this was a resin product, right? Now, uh, um, in the 1930s, now, this, is, now this, so this defines that cannabis was used by the ancient Israelites. And there's been a lot of debate about, about this, right? Uh, in the 1930s, uh, Sula Bennett, a Polish anthropologist and etymologist, she suggested that there was actually a Hebrew term for cannabis. And this Hebrew, the important thing was to see the size of that temple site. Now, Sula Bennett in the 30s, she suggested that there was this Hebrew word, canna, bosom, that was also sometimes just uh, uh, as canna. 
and that this was a reference to cannabis. And this word appears in Exodus thirty twenty three, Song of Songs four fourteen, Isaiah forty three twenty four, Ezekiel twenty seven nineteen, and Jeremiah six twenty. Sula Bennett suggested that uh, um, when the Hebrew texts were translated into the Greek, there was a mistranslation that took place. And this mistranslation identified it as calamus, but it was, in fact, a reference to cannabis. Calamus is a common Mideastern marsh fruit. In the first of these references, Exodus 30, 23, uh, God commands Moses to make a holy anointing oil. And he mixes it with myrrh, uh, cinnamon, cassia, and about uh, six and a half pounds of this cannabosum into about two gallons of olive oil. And, uh, you know, in the story, Moses first meets the angel of the Lord and flames of fire within a burning bush, right? Uh, um, and, and so every time that Moses is to speak to the Lord, he goes into what's referred to as the tent of the meeting. And this is probably an area that's probably about the size of those temples that I've shown you earlier, right? And uh, um, he covers himself in this oil. is fatty soluble. Uh, um, and uh, can pass through the skin, but he also takes some of this oil and he places it on the altar of incense. And then he speaks to the Lord in the pillar of smoke over the altar of incense, right? And this is, this is what they're saying about they were using this cannabis in these temples uh, for religious exodus, the same sort of thing. And this is a common way of uh, invocation with psychoactive fumigants is to speak to the deity in the pillar of smoke. You have the double effect of the psychoactive properties, but also the movement of the smoke and images can kind of appear. And, and, and the, the, the pillar of smoke is referred to as the Shekinah and it re, refer, you know, identified the physical presence of God. And in the story, none of the other Israelites ever see God. They just know if the smoke's pouring out of the tent of the meeting that Moses is in there uh, speaking to God. Now this is powerful information because what happens in that moment is Moses becomes a shaman who, like a shaman in other areas of the world, South America, Africa, uses a psychoactive substance. And based on the experience of that, they have no ideas about chemicals affecting the brain. Things were thought of as possession or communication or something like that, right? Or magic of some sort, right? And in this case, it's clearly uh, used in kind of a, a Julian James kind of concept of like, Moses, what are we going to do? And a voice from the smoke coming out, this is what you must do. Tell the Israelites. And Moses going out, okay, this is what your God has said, right? It's this powerful information uh, when you throw cannabis into that. And this, this uh, information, out, archaeology out of Arad, Jerusalem, uh, adds to that uh, um, in a way that has yet to be felt because it, this information came out in the midst of a pandemic and BLM riots. But it's starting to sink in to, uh, uh, with archaeologists and historians and stuff like that, the implications of this. The next song, uh, reference to cannabis is in the Song of Songs 4. And it's, uh, you are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus, i.e. cannabis, and cinnamon with every kind of incense tree and myrrhs and aloes and all the finest spices. How is thy love than wine and the smell of thine ointment than all spices? So this is like the reference to the same holy anointing well. At the time of kings, this use was extended to uh, kings as well. And those who received the anointing oil were referred to 
as the Messiah. This means the anointed one. Now, uh, um, it's been suggested by numbers of scholars that the Song of Songs is like the ancient Hebrew version of the Heroes Gamos, the sacred marriage. And we know that uh, uh, um, Yahweh did it in this time period uh, um, have a wife, Asherah. There's been archaeological evidence of this, Yahweh and his Asherah, and Asherah figurines and that sort of thing. And William M. Bowden, a botanist, he says that the priestesses of Asherah anointed their skin with cannabis as well as burnt it with frankincense. So this fits with the temple thing. And, uh, um, you know, we know that Asherah at times was worshipped right inside the temple uh, of Yahweh because it's in the Bible. But how they had to pull all that stuff out in reforms and destroy the brazen serpent that Moses made because people were burning incense to it. So this is all indications that there was like a reversal at some point of, of, of the whole cosmology, right? And um, it's not only Asherah that has been identified with cannabis. Uh, agent uh, 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 references in Assyria, where there's a similar word for cannabis, kanabu, and it's used in an identical way, temple incense, temple ointments. Uh, um, it was used in honor of Ishtar, in a perfume of Ishtar. And it's thought to go way back to a, an earlier e uh, Near Eastern goddess known Ishra, as Ishra. <clears throat> and likely they're all you know, originate from the same uh, earlier Near Eastern deity. And as she spread off, took on local flavor and names and, and varied a little bit, right? Uh, the next reference comes in the book of Ezekiel. Danites and Greeks from Musal brought your merchandise. They exchanged wrought iron, cassia, and canna for your wares. Canna being cannabis. Uh, um, this is important as well because one of the things that they're saying about the archaeology out of Israel is there's no evidence that cannabis was grown in the area. They can do soil samples uh, uh, of different strata, and there's no indication that there was any sort of local growing cannabis. There would be pollen and other things. And this identifies cannabis coming in on caravans as a trade. And this is interesting in regards to the etymologic, uh, etymology of cannabis, uh, canna, cannabosum. Because the Indo-European root word for cannabis is canna. This is the same term, and it's been taken over into the Hebrew language because as an item of trade, it's retained that name. Uh, now, although that, that doesn't make reference to Ezekiel getting high, we see a replay of the book of Revelation thing uh, um, that I talked about er earlier in Ezekiel, where it shows that he did take some sort of psychoactive substance. Ezekiel 3 says, Son of man, he said to me, eat and fill your stomach with the scroll I am giving you. So I ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. Then he said to me, Son of man, go now to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. Then he had his famous uh, vision of the, of the circles there. The next reference comes in Isaiah. Isaiah 43, 24, the Lord complains, thou hast brought me no sweet smelling cane, i.e. cannabis, with money. Neither hast thou filled me with the fat of thy sacrifice, but thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. Thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. Now, this is important as well, because at this time, it's polytheistic. We've already talked about the, the Song of Songs and Solomon, who, who burnt incense on high to the goddess. It's right in the Bible, right? Uh, um, and, and that was a problem with this cannabis. It was a precious, rare commodity. And in regards to temple worship, somehow the gods were speaking a little bit louder when you burn the cannabis. 
you know, or the, or the statues and the smoke with the lights and everything like that maybe moved a little bit more. And I suspect other antheogens will be showing up uh, as, as more research is done, right? Uh, um, now, we don't have to worry about Isaiah getting it all bad because uh, obviously uh, there's a reference that indicates at some points he did get high in the temple. And, uh, um, and in Isaiah 6, we read, and the po- post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from tongs off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. So basically, you know, we can imagine almost like a set of hot knives in the hashish uh, that we all experienced in our youth, I'm sure. Uh, um, uh, uh, the seraphim, which means fiery serpent, a shaman probably type figure in the temple, reaching in with tongs and the altar of incense, holding up a big burning nugget to Isaiah's mouth. And uh, his iniquity is taken away and his sins purged and he's given the power of prophecy. Now, uh, um, this is one of the interesting things when I first uh, learned about Sula Bennett's work were these references, some of them were very positive and some of them were very negative. And so what I had to do was come to understand the context of all of these references. And the next one is very negative. Uh, um, in Jeremiah 6.20, we read, What do I care about incense from Shiva or cannabis from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable. Your sacrifices do not please me. And so here we see what was formerly holy now has become disdained, uh, a, a thing of foreign worship. And um, this has to do with the suppression of the goddess religion. And it's pretty clear from Jeremiah 44 that this is the case. Thus say the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, ye have seen all the evil that I have brought upon Jerusalem and upon the cities of Judah. And behold, this day they are a desolation because of their wickedness, which they have committed to provoke me to anger, and that they wanted to burn incense and to serve other gods. Therefore now, wherefore commit ye the great evil against your souls, and that ye provoke me to wrath with the works of your hand, burning incense unto other gods in the land of Egypt. Then all the men knew that their wives had burned incense unto other gods, and all the women stood by in a great multitude. Even all the people that dwelt in the land of Egypt answered Jeremiah, saying, As for the word that thou hast spoken unto us in the name of the Lord, we will not hearken unto thee. We will certainly do whatever thing goeth forth out of our own mouths. And to burn incense unto the queen of heaven. And to pour drink offerings unto her. As we have done, we and our fathers, our kings, and our princes in the city of Judah, and in the streets of Jerusalem, for them we had plenty of victuals, and, and were well, and saw no evil. So here we see that, like, this was the norm, even it's described in the Bible. The kings, the princes, the monotheism was a radical reformation uh, of the religion. And I, I, I want to say, like, you know, the suppression of the entheogens is one thing. But the suppression of the goddess in the ancient world 
in the Abrahamic traditions is the greatest theological crime in human history in that it's made women subservient to men and downplayed the, sacred, uh, the sacredness of the divine feminine. It's a crime, you know, and it's a crime that has to be addressed and repaired to restore balance. Cannabis is part of the restoration of that balance because Asherah was the tree of life. Now, uh, um, there's also some interesting uh, wine, uh, infused wine references. And a couple of different scholars more than a century apart have talked about this. This occurs in the book of Ezra. And monotheism may well have come with Ezra into the Holy Land. Ezra had been a vassal of Persian overlords uh, um, after the, uh, the exile, you know, when they'd all been spread out all over the place. And they returned to, to Israel. And at that time, they, were, they weren't practicing monotheism, and, and, and he was kind of a reformer. But you got to remember, the same, a similar uh, thing had happened with Zoroastrianism, and this was a big influence here. Uh, and, and so maybe there was a sort of, there was a similar reform of, of, of monotheism, of, of playing down the other deities uh, in Zoroastrianism, and that may have been uh, part of the plan with Ezra. But uh, um, both George W. Brown in the 19th century, and more recently, the Brazilian uh, professor, Vicente do Baraka have suggested that Ezra drank an infused wine. And uh, um, in Ezra uh, 14, we read, The next day, behold, a voice cried to me, saying, Ezra, open thy mouth and drink what I give you to thee to drink. Then I opened my mouth, and behold, he reached me a full cup, which is full, as it were, with water. But the color of it was like fire. I took it and drank. And when I had drunk of it, my heart uttered understanding and wisdom grew in my breast for my spirit strengthened in my memory. And my mouth was open and shut no more. And they sat 40 days and they rode in the day and at night and they ate bread. As for me, I spake by the day and I held not my tongue by the night In 40 days, they wrote 204 books. This is like uh, putting together of the old Testament. That, you know, that's who's, who's generally uh, acquired it. And he drank some sort of infusion that inspired him, you know what I mean? It's pretty clear there. Now, this is interesting because we know that Zoroastrians uh, um, drank cannabis-infused wine for religious revelation. There are stories of King Vishtaspa, Zoroaster's first convert, uh, um, drinking cannabis-infused wine. The, the, the Persian terms are banga, or in Paladli, it's mang, and there's direct references in the Denkard and other uh, Zoroastrian texts to these infusions. And uh, it's interesting because Vishaspa's vision, uh, it, it actually predicted the end of the world. It's kind of the prototype for the book of Revelation. The oracle of Hystaspes, Hystaspes being the Greek version of Vishtaspa, was actually prohibited literature in ancient Rome because it predicted Rome's downfall. And, you know, in, in, in so did the book of Revelation. They had to use Babylon as a term because it was, uh, if you started talking about Rome, you're, you're going to get into trouble, right? Um, and Ardu Viraf, another Zoroastrian hero, uh, um, he's given three golden cups of this cannabis-infused wine, and this stuff would knock you out cold. Uh, um, and um, he had visions of heaven and hell, and this is the basis uh, for the modern versions of that, you know. Uh, um, now, um, cannabis infusions were likely used amongst the Jews. Uh, um, it, eased the, it was thought to have eased the pain of criminals about to be ex executed. Pro Proverbs 31.6 uh, it says, give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish. And Talmudic references indicate this use as well. The one on his way to execution was given a piece of incense 
in a cup of wine to help him fall asleep. And so we've already seen that there's actual references, you know, a documentation of cannabis incense being used in the temple. And they're talking about cannabis incense infused in wine to ease pain. And uh, um, it's interesting because in Amos 8, it's told that this same wine that was used by the condemned people was being drunk by the priests in the house of God. And Amos 8 says, they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. So here we see the same infused wine being taken right in there, right? And um, the use of wine uh, in Judaism and the ritual use of it uh, would later come to have some strong associations with Dionysius. There's even coins minted uh, that, that, that indicate a co-relationship between Yahweh and Bacchus, you know? So there's like the whole, the whole use of wine it was pretty widespread there in the temple for a while became kind of considered her- heretical later on and the new book the immortality key takes takes a lot uh, is based a lot on this association as well uh, um and uh now this brings us to the christian period we'll get into gnosticism a bit now so as i mentioned earlier the the hebrew term messiah makes reference to the anointed and the uh, uh the anointed one the anointing oil Uh, Christ is the Greek translation of that. So this is all direct reference to this anointing oil. And it should be remembered that Jesus never baptized anybody in the Bible. But in the oldest of the Synoptic Gospels, in Mark 6, 13, we read, And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. Now, if this is the holy oil, then Jesus was breaking all sorts of taboos that uh, restricted its use to priests and kings and brings it out to the people. And it's interesting because many of the New Testament miracles are the sorts of things that medical cannabis is being used for in our own time. Uh, um, The menstruating woman, you know, it's been used for that sort of thing in the 19th century, actual 19th century medicine bottles for uterine uh, uh, problems for this very, very purpose. Uh, the, the, the straightening of, you know, crooked limbs and, and people that couldn't walk. We see a lot of stuff with cannabis easing pain and joints and, uh, um, and some of these uh, uh, stricter seeds. But the most interesting one is probably the casting out of demons because epilepsy was thought to be demonic possession right up until the med- medieval times, right? And we know that cannabis was used for epilepsy in the ancient world because there's a Syrian references uh, to Kanabu uh, to be used for uh, what was called hand ghosts. They thought it was possession, right? Uh, uh, when somebody started shaking, but it's an actual reference to as a recipe for cannabis, which is again for epilepsy. So uh, uh, um, that in skin diseases, a lot of what, what was referred to as. Uh, uh, um, Oh, what, what, leprosy was actually a variety of the world and cannabis has uh, incredible antibacterial properties uh, topically applied right and, and the new testament references as well indicate more than medical qualities in 1 john 2 we read you have an anointing from the holy one and all of you know the truth the anointing you receive from him remains in you and you do not need anyone to teach you but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. So it's saying that by receiving this thing, somehow they've been given some sort of knowledge. 
And, you know, it's important to remember the connection of, of the John uh, Gospels with the Gnostic text. John's kind of considered the, the, the Gnostic, you know, the Gnostic representative in, in the New Testament by many scholars. And um, in the first few centuries, AD, now, one of the big com- conflicts between what became the Roman Catholic Church and the various sects known under the name Gnosticism did, in fact, have to do with baptism versus anointing oil. In the first few centuries AD, Christian Gnostic groups such as the Archonics, the Valentians, and Sethians rejected water baptism as superfluous, referring to it as an incomplete baptism. In the Gnostic tractate, the Testimony of Truth, water baptism is rejected with a reference to the fact that Jesus baptized none of his disciples. On the other hand, being anointed with an unar- Unutterable anointings, the so-called sealings recorded in Gnostic texts, can be seen as far a far more literal event than the many metaphorical baptisms that are referred to. To quote the Gospel of Philip, there is water and water, there is fire and chrism. And uh, uh, Mead said the anointing with oil was the introduction of the candidate into unfading bliss, thus becoming a Christ. The surviving Gnostic descriptions of the effect of the anointing rite make very clear that the holy oil had an intense psycho had intense psychoactive properties that prepared the recipients for entrance into unfading bliss. Indeed, the Gnostic tractate, the Gospel of Philip, records that the anointing is superior to baptism, for from the anointing we are called the anointed ones, Christians, not because of the baptism. And Christ also was so named because of the anointing for the father anointed the son and the son anointed the apostles and the apostles anointed us. Therefore, who has been anointed has the all. He has the resurrection, the light, the cross, the Holy Spirit. Throughout the text, light is associated usually with chrism. And it is stated that if one receives this unction, this person is no longer a Christian, but a Christ. Similarly, the gospel of truth records that Jesus specifically came into their midst so that he might anoint them with the ointment. The anointment is the mercy of the Father. Those whom he has anointed are the ones who have become perfect. As a respected German expert on Gnosticism, Kurt Rudolph has noted, anointing with oil has a greater representation than baptism in Gnosis, and is even regarded as more significant. The association is linked up with the name of Christ, the anointed one. Magical connotations also played an important role. Anointing oil expelled demons and gave protection against them. Correspondingly, it cured and dispelled the sickness of the soul and body. Hence, exorcism driving out was performed by means of anointing. The ancient magical texts provide abundant evidence for the application of oil. Often the anointing is taken as a sealing, the anointment as a seal, i.e. it is the protective art, act and declaration of property. The deity in the wood this way assures the believer through the priest that, that they enjoy protection. In the foreground, however, is the concept of redemption, the gift of immortality, which is transmitted by anointing. Now, it's likely they were using more than just cannabis by this time. There's indications of mandrake and other substances uh, in Christian's writings around this time, you know. Uh, um, so, you know, we, we could be talking about very potent psychoactive effects, and that's kind of indicated by that. Now, the importance of the holy ointment among the early Christians is also attested to in the apocryphal book, The Acts of Thomas, which has the rite of anointing clearly eclipsed the significance and importance of the placebo water baptism. This and the ointment's entheogenic effects derived from a certain plant 
is aptly demonstrated in the prayers and invocations which the apocryphal book recorded as accompanying the rite. Holy oil, given us for sanctification, hidden mystery. You are the unfolder of hidden parts. You are the humiliator of uh, stubborn deeds. You are the one who shows the hidden treasure. You are the plant of kindness. Let your power come by this unction. That's the Acts of Thomas. So it's been this unction. And the Acts of Thomas also says, thou art the straightener of crooked limbs. The Acts of the Peter and the Twelve Apostles demonstrate Jesus' own view of the importance of this rite when he gives the disciples an unguent box and a pouch full of medicine with the instructions to go into the city of habitation and heal the sick. He tells them, you must heal the bodies first before you can heal the heart. In the Gnostic view, as described in the Gospel of Philip, those who go down on the water come up without having received anything. The anointing is superior to baptism. For the anointing, we are called Christians. Okay, I already read that. Uh, um, similarly, the gospel of truth records that Jesus specifically came in their midst so that he might anoint them with the ointment. So as in, the, in Gnosticism, as in the New Testament references, we see both healing and entheogenic properties associated with the Holy Word. Now, the second book of uh, Jew is probably the best text for evidence of uh, a psychoactive properties. And there's anointings in that as well, but also copious incense references and indications of infused wines and ingested plants. The second book of Jew refers specifically to the as of yet unidentified plant, Sinocephalia, which was put into the mouths of participants. Pliny mentions this same plant was being used for divination, clearly a Gnostic reference to an antigen of some kind. Pliny claims to have heard from Appion, the grammarian, a notorious resident of Egypt, that the herb Sinocephalia is known in Egypt as Osiris, after the god Osiris, and is believed to have been the source of divination and a protection against black magic. The exact sort of way these uh, Gnostics were using th- this plant, you know. And there are other identified plants in the Gnostic text as well, such as Castella and Thos. So there's, you know, a variety of unidentified plants in the text, some that we know of, and it's clear that many of these were uh, psychoactive. In the second book of Jew, the fragrance incense is offered to the virgins of light, and this will be seen to be reminiscent of the offering of cannabosum incense to the queen of heaven that was carried on from polytheistic Hebrew times, also of interest concerning the incense, and further evidence of syncretism is the wonder of the incense is brought in about by a figure known as Zorokothora. <clears throat> Zorokothora does have strong indications of the name Zoroaster, the Persian sage we discussed earlier. And uh, um, another Gnostic tractate, the Apocrypha of John, has Jesus make mention of Zoroaster, teaching himself, uh, 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 declaring to the John, uh, the son of, John, the son of Zebedee, if you wish to know them, it is written in the book of Zoroaster. Jesus may not have been uh, here referring directly to the Zoroastrian holy books, the Gathas and the Zendavestas, but instead to a tractate that was popular with early Gnostics uh, entitled Zoroastrianos. And this figure is, some, is said by some to represent the lineage of the famous Persian prophet Zoroaster. Uh, um, in the Nag Hammadi documents, Zoroastrianos, the ancient Iranian prophet Zoroaster, is portrayed in accordance with the ideas of late antiquity. As a proclaimer of secret doctrine, his wisdom he obtains in the course of a heavenly journey, which he experienced in the dre- desert. Now, Zostrianos is uh, sadly fragmented, but there are indications 
that some sort of a drink was used. And in Zostrianos, he says, after I parted from the somatic darkness in me and the psychic chaos in mind and the feminine desire, I did not use it again. Well, he obviously took something. And uh, again, later, tying in the effect of the drink with a reference to baptism. And as I said, I've asked about the mixture. It is perfect and it gives and the words are missing. Uh, uh, There's power in which which we receive baptism. So he's some sort of like substance there, a mixture. And I didn't want to use it again after that trip. (laughs) Uh, And I think that was true. You know, it's another thing about a lot of these agent uses. These these weren't people that were using these things regularly. In the Zoroastrian accounts, it was like a one-time thing, man. This was like something you prepared for and you did it. And that was, wah! And that was it, you know? Uh, um, And probably... this is true of a lot of these Zoroastrian accounts as well. Um, and uh, references to wine in the second book of Jew offer indi- indications of infusion with ceremonies that involve plant branches, berries, vines, and other items. And this and infusions of, of such substances was not an uncommon practice about it. Pliny and other authors directly wrote about infused wines. And we have archaeological evidence of these sorts of infusions uh, um, going back 2,500 years from a variety of sites, right? And uh, um, this sort of thing was likely what was behind the famous uh, account of Irenaeus of the Gnostic Marcus. And uh, as Irenaeus wrote, pretending to concentrate cups mixed with wine and protracting the great length the word of invocation, he contrives to give them a purple and reddish color, so that Cheras, who is the one of those that are superior to all things, should be thought to drop her own blood into that cup through means of his invocation. And that thus those who are, are present should be led to rejoice the taste of that cup, in order that by, that by so doing, the Cheras, who is set forth by this magician, may also flow into them. When this has been done, he pronounces these words, may that chaff's who is before all things and who transcends all knowledge and speech, fill thine inner man and multiply in the, the her own knowledge by sowing the grain of the mustard seed in thee as in good soil. It appears probable enough that this man possesses a demon as his familiar spirit, by means of whom he seems able to prophesy, and also enables as many as he counts worthy to be partakers of his cherish themselves to prophecy. Now, it's pretty clear that, that, that the power of cherish, which means grace, came through this wine into the person. And even Irenaeus is acknowledging that there's a power of prophecy here. So this is likely another uh, reference to infused wines. And numbers of scholars going back more than a century have suggested an infusion of some, some sort here. Uh, and Seth, uh, the, the agent author of the Gospel of the Egyptians, indicates that it was inhaling certain fumes, which gave, gave him the foreknowledge to hide the sacred texts in the mountain of Charaxio where they remained for well over a millennium. The great set wrote this book with letters and placed it in the mountain that is called Charaxio in order at the end of times and errors by the will of the divine autogenes and the whole Pleroma uh, uh, through the gift of the untraceable, unthinkable fatherly love it may come forth revealed the incorruptible holy race of the great savior and those who dwell with him in love. And what he says is, therefore the incense of life is in me in order that I may live with thee in the peace of the saints, those that existeth really, truly, forever. This is very similar to a passage in Revelation about incense containing the prayers of the saints. It's interesting, you know, the Gnostic text too, you know, that's kind of interesting in the sense, like, I kind of think the discovery of the Nag Hammadi library 
was in a, a sense the resurrection of Jesus because it brought this whole new literary view of Jesus that differs vastly from the Jesus of the New Testament. You know, when Jesus is even in the New Testament, you know, it says that, that he has secret keys and stuff like that. And then this book emerges with these secret keys, you know. And, and I think that it is, in a, in a very real way, you know, the resurrection. And, you know, and as my own story begins with the tree of life, I thought this passage from the on the origins of the world, when I read it, you know, I, I really felt a connection to it. And the tree of eternal life is as it appeared by God's will to the north of paradise, so that it might make eternal the souls of the pure, who shall come forth from the model forms of poverty at the consummation of the age. And let's hope for a better future, you know. And I want to say, like, having dedicated my life to cannabis, I've always seen it as something that affects so many areas of life from our world. I don't still mean justice issues of people going unjustly to prison over a plant. I'm talking about like deforestation and how one acre of hemp can produce as much paper as four acres of trees over the same 20 year period, you know, and we can save our old growth for forest. We can move away from fossil fuels with biomass fuels. We can replace soil depleting cotton with organically grown hemp. We can feed the world's hunger with the most digestible source of protein. And, 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 you know, I was the first person to actually sell commercial hemp seed food. Now I see it in all the supermarkets like crazy, you know, 30 years later, right? Uh, um, and uh, then we could take a look at the medicinal qualities, you know, and, you know, how parents today curing their children of epilepsy see this as a miracle. It is saving children's lives like nothing else. You can just look it up right now. There'll be news stories going back years now, and just so many of them. Uh, its effects on cancer as well. It's been shown in studies to actually shrink tumors by stopping the blood flow into the tumors and convincing the tumors to follow the cell death pattern that they're supposed to follow. Uh, um, And uh, uh, other things, glaucoma, all these varieties of of diseases, right? And then here's this plant coming back as a world sacrament. And it's not just this Judeo-Christian tradition, you know, uh, I firmly believe, and I think the archaeological evidence for that is there as well, that cannabis was the sum of the Vedas, the helm of the Vesta. It was clearly used uh, by the cult of Shiva for millennia, and he's the oldest continually worshipped god on earth, and it's still taken in honor of Shiva. Agent Taoist took cannabis as, as the plant of immortality back, you know, it's written about 25, 2600 years ago. Sikhs, uh, Nihangs, the protector of the holy paces, they drank cannabis as Sukkadun, another holy sacrament, you know, and in all this information coming to the light right at this time, it's like we're being offered two pathways, you know, we, we're, we're, we could go the way of like the Trumps and the Koches and the oil and the, the global warming and, and what it's doing to our planet, or we can green up. And I think that's what the return of these entheogens is not just cannabis here as well. There's just a whole renaissance happening with all sorts of entheogenic plants is in a sense, our way to get back into the garden and take a greener way, you know, just as Adam and Eve's eyes were open. I think that this information about entheogens in the Bible is as much a threat to fundamental religion as Darwin's theory of evolution was to the myth of Adam and Eve in Genesis, because what it shows is the plant-based origins 
of the religion itself. And that's my presentation. Bravo. Thank you. That was amazing. Inspirational. Yeah. And agreed. We need this more than ever. Thank you so much, Chris. Uh, the only thing I can add is that, uh, and um, with Marcus, the magician, I think Hippolytus actually says that they, that the, it, the wine bubbled and they went in a trance minutes and oh, you know, it, I'll have it, to go back and look over yeah, that. There's, yeah, there, yeah. there's always like more than church, but yeah, it, there was something, there was a drug and Hippolytus definitely. Well, you, in Corinthians, Paul talks about the wine, putting them into a sleep and it's like the same sort of temple sleep and stuff yeah. like that. This is something um, Rescue discusses in the immortality key. Awesome. Well, wonderful. Well, that, does anybody have a question for Chris? Chris, yeah, I have a question. Can you hear me? Yeah. You can. Great. Okay. Well, wonderful presentation. I, think, I don't think it can be disputed uh, in terms of your line of thinking all the way along the lines from ancient Israel up into Jesus' time. I am wondering, um, you mentioned that in ancient Israel that uh, only the kings and priests were allowed to use cannabis and Jesus was a heretical reformer in that sense and so I'm wondering with the temple Ju Judaism I wonder if that had a uh, a strong influence uh, a dampening influence perhaps on some of that as well and uh, I'm thinking of Gospel of Philip you were quite right about using seeing the uh, the links to um, the cannabis as well as scrying in water and and scrying in, uh, in mirrors as well. And in Gospel of Thomas, you have scrying with uh, uh, the cup there. For me, it's a clear reference. Um, but Gospel of Thomas doesn't, I, as I recall, doesn't mention um, um, uh, oil. Uh, and I'm wondering if that's because Thomas was designed not to piss people off, to kind of get through the censors, to, to be a mystery school in plain sight, and uh, because of uh, the influence possibly of Judaism with uh, uh, James the Just, for example, uh, who was who was very Jewish, and uh, you know, I, I wonder if you any thoughts along those lines. You know, I, I can't really, I haven't really thought about uh, the Gospel of Thomas like that in that sense. Uh, it does, it doesn't mention any anointing oil. It doesn't give any indications. I don't even think of a Eucharist in there as well. Um, I really don't have an answer to that, but what you said about mirrors and stuff like that is interesting because um, uh, the 16th century uh, Jewish magical text, the Sefer Raziel Liber Salomonis, a Jewish magical text, has a recipe for a cannabis anointing oil for mirror scrying to see visions in mirrors, uh, spirits and demons and stuff like that. And it's a topical uh, preparation, much like these earlier references. And I would say that mirror scrying is probably one of the most common ways that cannabis shows up in uh, um, magic. Uh, um, and we see this with Pascal Beverly Randolph and uh, Louis Alphonse Cahagne in the 19th century as well. Uh, cannabis in, it being used topically and uh, other ways uh, uh, for mirror scrying. And also in regards to seeing visions in cup, there's Persians accounts of uh, the, I'm just trying to think, the cup of Jephthah or something like that. I forget the guy's name, but it's like a whole tradition of seeing a vision in a cup. And that was probably a, a way that was utilized by the Zoroastrians as well. It seems like this is a tradition that grew out of that. So it, that has a super, super long history 
And it's, there's an important point here, I think. Um, what, what I started thinking about mirror scrying, you know, and, uh, um, and uh, um, the, the, this is, this, the whole thing with cannabis in the 19th century is it actually developed the ideas of the unconscious or subconscious. And uh, this is through the works of uh, uh, um, uh, Dr. Uh, I'm just trying to think of his name. He's a doctor and he was in the, the, the Dr. J.J. Moreau. In the, and he was a member of the Le Club de Hashishin. And he was thinking that um, cannabis was mimicking madness. So you could have the experience of insanity and also the dream state. And, um, you know, when you think about, like, one of the things that's said about cannabis and dreaming is, is, is you use a lot of cannabis. You generally don't dream very much. And that's true. Uh, but I've also noticed a few times I've woken up at like four in the morning or something like that. I can't sleep. I smoke a bowl, go back to sleep. And I have the most vivid dreams I have ever had, the most vivid, reoccurring, uh, interactive dreams I've ever had. And so I started uh, uh, researching about this. And studies done in the 80s, unfortunately, there's not more current research on this, indicate that upon use of cannabis, uh, um, daytime melatonin levels can spike as much as 2,000 times normal daytime levels. And melatonin plays a big role in dreaming. And um, I suspect what I was experiencing uh, when I didn't dream was lo- using cannabis all day. My melatonin levels are depleted, right? And then when I smoked it at four in the morning, I'm already in a deep sleep state, and I get this huge spike of melatonin and have super vivid dreams, right? And I think that this has a lot to do like, okay, when you dream, you're in the dream, you're experiencing the dream, you're telling yourself the dream, and you're all the other people in the dream, you know? And uh, um, this is, I think, what is being used when it's used in cannabis with mirrors. This was a, a waking way to induce that subconscious or unconscious aspect of ourselves, say the moon aspect of ourselves, and bring it into the daytime aspect of ourselves the sun and bring those two things together the moon and the sun (laughs) and uh this is where you find genius right is when you start bringing these things together and i think this is the real uh purpose of cannabis is its ability uh to access the subconscious and unconscious mind and i think generally people that are using it a lot are kind of on a little bit more of an esoteric level than the people that aren't um, that's my opinion on it, right? Um, so you sparked but, my thought about uh, Gospel Thomas again. I'm wondering about the wine-infused, cannabis-infused wine in, say, number 13, where uh, Jesus says, I am not your master because you have drunk. You have become intoxicated from the bumping spring, which I have measured out. Hmm. Well, that could be something, you know, because it's like a lot of these infused wines – uh, you could you could get kill yourself with them. There's accounts in Pliny and stuff like that. Some of this stuff really, you had there was like special thimbles and things like that to give them out because there was things like datura and henbane and uh, mandrake being used in such infusions, which can have really potent effects. Right? Um, it's been a long time. I should mention that like I wrote most of this Gnostic stuff like 20 years ago. 
over 20 years ago in the 90s, late 90s is when I wrote uh, about a lot of that stuff. And I go over it a bit now and then uh, um, to, uh, you know, cover it briefly in other books to kind of put a bit of a background, right? You know what I mean? But it's been a long time since I've like, you know, been reading the Nagamati pretty fully and reading books on Gnosticism and stuff like that. So I appreciate you bringing up the, the specifics there because I'd completely forgotten about that passage. That was thought number 89 also maybe had something to do with, with, with scrying. And I, I didn't even consider the idea of uh, wine that was infused by cannabis, but 89 says, Jesus says, why do you wash the outside of the cup? Do you not realize that he who made the inside the same one who made the outside? So everything in Thomas is really kind of hidden and obscure and metaphoric yeah. purposely to hide what they're actually doing. But what leads into 89 is 88 here, where Jesus says, the angels and prophets will come to you and give to you those things you already have, and you too give them those things that you have and say to yourselves, when will they come and take what is theirs? So this is like a vision or a dream or something of angels and prophets coming, you know, to you, and which leads into the cup stuff here. And then um, uh, the following passage, number 90, Jesus says, come unto me for my yoke is easy and my Lord is mild and you will find repose for yourself, rest for yourselves here. So you'll hit the, you do this 89 trip, then maybe you'll uh, experience the uh, pleroma, the rest of the pleroma. And it's also saying, you know, it's not a big deal, you know, don't get too freaked out about this, okay? Just, you know, my yoke is easy, my lordship is mild, it's okay, you know. So I think it's all one of a piece there. Yeah, you know, I think one of the, the really good passages uh, in the Gospel of Thomas is, is he talking about the suckling, ba suckling babe in there? Is that the one? Uh, yeah, it's really a metaphor for suckling on the breast of the Holy Spirit of, of Sophia, well, you the know, divine feminine. You know, like the state of consciousness of the suckling babe is important here as well, I think, because it's like the ultimate state of oneness. There's no division between the baby and the mother. And I think that was like a big part of the goal of, of the whole entheogenic Gnostic experience was to have that experience of samadhi. Uh, that oneness with the universe, you know, that the, the babe experiences at the mother's breast, you know, uh, and a one with a pleroma. And, and, and even some of the New Testament, uh, you know, if you had but the eyes to see, the kingdom of heaven is out before you, you know. It's all there. You just got to, like, make a transition in your own mind to see it, you know. And, and uh, I, I, you know, just as, as that's the goal, the real goal, goal of cannabis use and by Shaivites and stuff like that is to to achieve samadhi and we see similar use with hashish i think that was a big part of the antheogenic use of gnosticism was even in the sex sexual gnosticism the the instancy the blank point at the end of the orgasm is probably as much of a relevant state of consciousness where you have that clearness of mind uh, as the building up and, 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 and the Eucharistic sacramental implications of all that as well. I think the divine feminine was a big part of Thomas and they, they make a big point of that in the opening part of the gospel where gospel number or thing number three is really about the Holy Spirit, but Holy Spirit, Sophia, um, the kingdom is inside you and it's outside of you and, and that type of thing. What does that mean? Well, you look at number four and it's pretty obscure, but 
Jesus says, the men olden days will not hesitate to ask a small child seven days old about the place of life. There is a small child again, and he will live. Well, where's the place of life? It's the mother's breast, right? And who's the mother? If you're talking metaphorically, it's Sophia. So nursing in the breast of the Holy Spirit, the mother is Sophia, is what this is talking about here. And then you come to number five, and Jesus says, come to know that which is in front of you and that which is hidden from you will become manifest to you. So what's in front of you is the mother's breast, Sophia, you know, in that consciousness of the oneness, uh, and it will become manifest to you. There's nothing hidden which will not become manifest. So you're nursing out the, uh, uh, the milk of Sophia here. Yeah, I don't, I, I, um, well, one thing is, you know, it's interesting about human mother's milk. It has endocannabinoids in it, <laughs> but I doubt that there's any awareness of that on the, on the part of the ancient Gnostic authors. Uh, um, but uh, yeah, I think it's all, you, you know, basically the, 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 the illusion there is like the oneness experience, you know, the babe is at one with his mother. That's what we want to be, one with the mother. We see, that, we see that later other places, too, on like number 22, for example, too. It's a common image. When Jesus saw infants being suckled, he said to the disciples, these infants being suckled are like those who enter the kingdom. So. And then this is, it's a big one about making the two one and the inside like the outside, the outside like the inside, the above like the below. You know, and uh, so this is really the higher self here. Yeah. Wonderful. I've got a question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, since um, I wonder how what the ancient Gnostics thought about the fact that uh, let's say they were aware that Moses and other you know uh, other of the Jews and Hebrews and so forth of the Old Testament were communicating with the God of the Old Testament versus you know with with the Antiochians, and so would they want to talk to the God of the Old Testament too, or yeah. would they shun that? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's really hard to uh, see clear. I I think that Gnostic is pre-Christian, right? You know, myself, and it, it grew out of the disappointment of of Judaism, right? Now, in the reforms that were discussed uh, with Hezekiah and Josiah, they actually pull out the brazen serpent, which is the you know very big symbol in Gnosticism in the Garden of Eden, and the Asherah out of the inner temple, right? And uh, um, the other references, like Song of Songs, also indicate that it was used in this kind of more polytheistic fashion. Now, uh, um, when I wrote my book, Sex, Drugs, and the Violence in the Bible, I kind of thought of Moses as an actual historical figure, right? Um, I don't think so anymore. You know, I think a lot of that stuff starts with uh, Ezra and that uh, um, that the accounts in Exodus and stuff like that. It's very similar to a lot of stuff that's in the Assyrian literature, like especially with this uh, Kanabu and the, and the Kanabas, and they're almost used in identical, it seems to be like the, 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 the kind of standard Near Eastern practice. Um, I think there's like an association already uh, um, with the serpent and this type of stuff and with the goddess, even before uh, Gnosticism rose up. Right. Um, but uh yeah, you know, and also there's also a, a taking away, right? Like with, with the with the Exodus account, it's strictly prohibited to priests and kings, so it's kind of pirated and taken to the common people in kind of a, as a stealing of fire type of thing, you know? 
Makes sense. Wonderfully said. Any other questions before we wrap it up? Great discussion. Great presentation. All good. Yeah. Well, you oh, one, covered. Oh, one more. One more question. Sure, sure, um, what was your dating on uh, Arad in Jerusalem when they found that cannabis? Uh, twenty eight hundred B. Uh, twenty eight hundred years ago, eight hundred BC. Oh, okay. So they've been doing it for a while. Yeah, great job. And, uh, and then there's of, also, I should mention, uh, there's 4th century AD evidence of cannabis in Bet Shemesh, Jerusalem, where it was used uh, medically, topically, and burnt as an incense uh, for a young woman who she unfortunately died during childbirth, but they found her mummified remains, as well as vessels that contained residues of cannabis. So we have it at uh, 2,800 uh, uh, years ago, and then... Uh, um, uh, 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 1,600 years ago. On, on either side of that, used in a similar way to what we were suggesting for the Christian period. Very cool. Yeah, it was uh, reminding me uh, a lot of uh, Acharya S.S. D.M. Murdoch's book on Moses and how she's able to connect Dionysus to Moses to Yahweh. And I mean, you do the same. I think it's obvious that, yeah, Judaism was an ecstatic, intoxicating, shamanistic cult, like you said before, for shit went wrong. But (laughs) I'm glad we know this. And like you said, let's get back to this ancient uh, gnosis because things were better. But uh, yeah. Thanks, Chris. We Again, as always, we will have the recording for the rest of the group, those who have missed. And then later on, I plan to put it even for a wider release on YouTube because this is uh, important stuff. I'll, I'll have the recording ready for everybody and uh, for the Inner Sanctum Virtual Alexandria Citizens in about two or three days. And I appreciate everybody showing up and being here. And most of all, Chris, thank you very much for uh, joining us. A great discussion. Okay, peace, everybody. Let's uh, hope for better days. Amen, (laughs) amen. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Have a good night and a good weekend. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.